Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia. And as always, I'm sad. This week I'm a little bit sadder than usual because, well, it's final season. It's my first final season in quite a while. It's final season as a graduate, which means a lot of papers. And while I love writing 10-page papers exploring Marxism and feminism, it's definitely catching up to me. So if I don't sound as upbeat as I usually do, that's why. But enough about me. Let's talk about the subject of this week's study guide, Joseph Bonaparte. In history class, if Joseph came up at all, he was known for being one of Napoleon's many incompetent siblings who Napoleon gave control of a European country. In Joseph's case, it was Naples and then Spain. But his life story has so much more than incompetence and ruling Spain. His study guide includes a cameo from a legendary creature, a lot of cousin marriage, and a fun trip to New Jersey. Let's begin. The man who would be Joseph Bonaparte, the King of Naples and King of Spain, was born January 7th, 1768, in Corsica. He was the first of the Bonaparte, aka Bonaparte kiddos, and his parents were Carlo and Leticia Bonaparte. Get used to me saying his parents were Carlo and Leticia Bonaparte because, surprise, surprise, Carlo and Leticia are going to be the parents of all the Bonaparte siblings. When Joseph was born in Corsica, Corsica still technically belonged to Italy, but he is the only one of the Bonapartes who is going to be Italian-born because soon after his birth, France takes over Corsica. However, in the process of France taking over Corsica, Corsica is in the middle of an aborted independence movement. There's this resistance leader, Pasquale Paoli, who's like, hey, maybe Corsica should be its own country. That's a thought. And very briefly, Joseph's father, Carlo, is supporting Pasquale Paoli. But then he realizes that it's very unlikely that Corsica is in fact going to be its own country. It's pretty clear that France is going to win the struggle, and Carlo isn't a stupid man. He ends up switching sides and supporting France. While this switching sides from a moral and ethical perspective wasn't great, it does mean that as soon as France grabs control of Corsica, Carlo gets a lot of power and positions in this new French government, which is pretty excellent for the Bonaparte family. We don't have all that much information about Joseph Bonaparte's childhood. We know he was close to his little brother Napoleon, and we know that he had a reputation for being both very studious and very friendly, but beyond that, yeah, we just don't know that much until Joseph is 12, because when he's 12, he gets sent off to France to go to school and get a proper education. Along with Joseph, 
Napoleon and their sister Elisa also are sent to school. The three siblings are split up. Joseph is sent to a school in Autun, Burgundy, while Napoleon goes to a military school outside of Paris, and Elisa is sent to an all-girls school at Saint-Cyr. The separation is really tough for both Joseph and Napoleon because the two brothers were fairly close. The two will send each other very detailed letters about the separate educations the two are getting. Despite suffering severe separation anxiety, Joseph is going to do very well in school because he is a total nerd and loves reading. He ends up being one of the top students at his school in Burgundy, and as a result, he gets the reward of getting to meet the Duke of Comte, aka one of Louis XIV's many grandsons. The family plan, once they find out that Joseph is an excellent student, is to have him enter the church, because that's not unusual for the oldest son in a family. However, Joseph has no interest in going the religious route. He wants to reunite with his brother Napoleon, which means joining the army. This does not happen, because in 1784, Joseph has to return to Corsica. His father is super sick. The next year, in 1785, Carlo Bonaparte dies of stomach cancer, a disease that is going to ravage the Bonaparte family. Quite a few of the Bonapartes are going to end up dying of various forms of cancer. Tragically for young Joseph, Carlo is going to spend his final moments calling out for Napoleon, not his oldest son, which frankly, probably psychologically devastated Joseph. After his father's death, Joseph stays in Corsica to help out with the family because, as it turns out, his dad wasn't exactly great with the whole money thing. Napoleon and the next two oldest siblings, Lucien and Eliza, are going to stay in France to complete their educations, while Joseph is going to stay in Corsica because he has four young siblings to help raise, and like we've established, his dad didn't exactly leave behind an inheritance for the family. Now that he's stuck in Corsica, Joseph has to make a decision, and that decision is how the hell is he going to ensure that his family has money to get by? Joseph isn't stupid. He decides that neither the army nor entering a religious profession is really going to cut it. Instead, he decides that he's going to study law. By entering into the legal profession, it's a double win. He'll be able to stay close to his family, but he'll actually be able to make money, which is a good thing. He goes to the nearby city of Pisa to study and get his law license. And while he's in Pisa, he starts learning about cute new concepts like equality under the law and individual rights. Because if you're a young man living in a fairly metropolitan city in the late 1780s, those are the sorts of ideas that are floating around in the air. In 1788, Joseph gets his law degree and is admitted to the bar at the age of 20. And 1788 is going to be a huge year for an educated young man living under the French umbrella. Because 1788 means that we're getting ever closer to 1789. 
1789, Louis XVI has no choice but to recall the Estates General to figure out the financial situation on the ground in France. And when Louis XVI does that, the Third Estate, aka the estate made up of everyone that's not a noble or a clergyman, decides that, oh hey, we should get a say in what's going on in France, and they decide to pull out of the Estates General and do their own thing and kickstart the National Assembly. And meanwhile, in Paris, everyone is super fed up over high grain prices due to a variety of factors, which will eventually lead to the storming of the Bastille. And oh, hey, what's that? French Revolution? What? Yeah, that's right. The French Revolution is starting. Due to his position as a lawyer, Joseph is able to pass information about what's going on in mainland France to the everyday person in Corsica. And as it turns out, Joseph is super good at explaining events in France in a way that everyday Corsicans can understand. And very quickly, Joseph becomes the go-to guy to go for information about what's going on in France. He becomes invited to write treatises about the French situation. He gets invited to speak at various Corsican conventions about the French Revolution. And pretty soon, he's getting elected to various local political positions. Meanwhile, his younger brother Napoleon has entered the French army and is quickly making his way through the ranks in the French army. Because Napoleon, as it turns out, is really good at this brand new concept of the artillery. Soon, Napoleon is taking various unapproved leave of absences to visit the family back at Corsica, and the two brothers are going on tours of Corsica and becoming pretty well-known locally. By the, early 19- By the early 1790s, tensions are ramping up in Corsica. The big question on the island is, should Corsica stay with France and join the French Republic, or should it break away and finally become the independent nation that Corsicans have been dreaming about for centuries, or should it do some third, as of yet, undecided thing? Joseph and Napoleon are both moderate Republicans. They don't personally love the monarchy under Louis XVI, but they don't love the concept of a totally independent mob rule. Napoleon, by this point, had already seen some not-so-great things occurring in Paris and France at large. Meanwhile, in Corsica, Pasquale Pauli, the independence leader of Corsica from Joseph's birth, is back in power on the island and is trying to push a breakaway nationalist uprising there. However, Joseph and Napoleon aren't exactly fans of this nationalist uprising. It's a little too mob for them, and they're afraid that if a nationalist uprising does occur, and if Corsica does become independent, the Bonaparte family specifically will lose power. This is a very unpopular position to take in Corsica, and as a result, the Bonaparte family has to flee. The entire family goes to France in 1793. They change their name from Bonaparte to the more Frenchified Bonaparte. Joseph and Napoleon 
go to the city of Toulon, which Napoleon hopefully frees from a British blockade, while the rest of the family chills in Marseille for a time. In 1794, Joseph returns to Marseille and marries Julie Clary, the daughter of a local wealthy merchant. At the same time, Napoleon gets engaged to Julie's younger sister, Eugenie, who he renames to Desiree, because as we've established, Napoleon loves to rename young girls. However, Napoleon ends up breaking off his engagement with Desiree for Josephine, and Desiree will end up becoming the Queen of Sweden instead, but that's a story for another podcast. Joseph and Julie Claret, now Julie Bonaparte, will have three daughters. Julie, who will die young, Lenaid Letitia, who will marry Joseph's brother Lucien's son, and Charlotte, who will marry Louis II of Holland, aka Louis and Hortense's daughter. So yeah, both of Joseph's daughters will marry their cousins, which is totally normal and not at all something to be concerned about. After Joseph's marriage to Julie, he and Napoleon will stay pretty close. Both of them are pretty concerned about what the heck is going on with their younger brother Louis and Louis's education, because the Bonaparte brothers have never met a younger sibling whose lives they don't want to meddle in. However, after Napoleon marries Josephine in 1796, the brothers do become a little bit less close because none of the Bonapartes particularly like Josephine. Joseph in particular doesn't like Josephine because he particularly wanted Napoleon to marry his wife's younger sister, Desiree. However, the two brothers manage to reconcile, which honestly is going to be an ongoing trend in this study guide. After marrying Josephine, Napoleon became in charge of the Army of Italy, and once he did that, he managed to get Joseph to become a diplomat, specifically the French diplomat to Turin, even though Joseph had absolutely no qualifications whatsoever for this position. As the French diplomat to Turin, Joseph mostly just hung out at Milan with Napoleon, and then Joseph got appointed to be the French ambassador to Parma, because why not? Joseph took advantage of this position to buy a fancy house in Milan called Montebello and do absolutely no diplomatic activity in either city. Around this time, Joseph did help organize the marriage of two of his younger sisters. His sister Lisa married an army captain, Felice Boccaccio, who also went by Lavoie, and his sister Caroline married yet another French army captain, Charles Leclerc, and I will be going into much more detail about both of these marriages on the study guides on both of these sisters. Do not worry. The next year, in 1797, Joseph became the French minister to Rome. As the French minister, Joseph's main goal was to improve the French relationship with the Catholic Church, specifically Pope Pius VI. France had always been Catholic. There's no denying that. However, during the French Revolution, relationships between France and the Catholic Church had hit a historic low point thanks to revolutionary, aka Robespierre's, habit of, of attempting to get rid of religion within France 
which, shockingly, the Pope was not a fan of. And it was Joseph's job to be like, nope, Francis Catholic again, we love you, can't we be friends? At the beginning, it looked like Joseph maybe was going to be able to achieve this. He met with the Pope, things were going great, they agreed to work together to get uber-Catholics in rural France to end the Civil War in the Vendée. But then Joseph hit a bit of a sticky point, because the head of the papal army was this Austrian officer who had been captured three times by Napoleon and absolutely loathed him, and by extension hated Joseph and wanted to see him fail. And then there were the people of the city of Rome, who tended to be Republicans and wanted to break away from the Papal States, aka break away from the Pope. France was a Republic. France should be supporting these Roman Republicans in their attempt to break away. But Joseph couldn't support them because he couldn't isolate the Pope too much. So he was sort of stuck in this tricky political space where he should be supporting the Republicans, but he couldn't, and yet you keep promising the Pope that the Republican France wouldn't be pushing Rome to re become Republican, which made Joseph look like an utter hypocrite. It ended up not working at all because the Roman Republicans ended up invading the Papal Palace in December 1797 and making it all the way in, and it was an entire mess. Joseph ended up leaving Rome in disgrace and going back to France by the beginning of 1798. Shockingly, Napoleon was pretty furious by this entire turn of events, but he couldn't really do anything about it because by now, Napoleon had decided to do his little Egypt adventure and he was too far away to put a stop to it. On Joseph's return to France in 1798, he joined what was known as the Council of 500, which was France's legislative body during the Directory. And for those of you who fell asleep during your history classes recap of the French Revolution, the Directory was France's government post-reign of terror. It was famously incompetent. By serving on the Council of 500, Joseph got a front row seat to how incompetent and weak the directory was. And he pretty quickly let Napoleon know how bad the state of affairs were in France. Meanwhile, Napoleon is in Egypt becoming an international hero. And Napoleon's like, hmm, if anyone is going to take the directory down, it's going to be someone who's getting some stunning wins abroad. Looks like it's me. I should be the one to overthrow the directory in a coup. And that's what Napoleon's going to do in his famous coup of 18th Brumaire. In 18th Brumaire, Joseph is going to help out Napoleon because that's what brothers do, but he's not going to be quite as central to the coup as their other brother, Lucien Bonaparte. Basically, while Napoleon is getting ready to overthrow the Directory, Joseph is literally going to leave the room and just watch from behind the scenes. But hey, he still helped, and brothers help out brothers. So once Napoleon is running the show, 
as consul, he's going to give Joseph a very major position in the new government as a member of the Council of State. But Joseph isn't really interested in being high up in the government. After all, he now has a fancy new rural estate, Morfontaine, and he's more interested in throwing fancy parties with his wife, Julie, than, you know, running government. But Napoleon does manage to get Joseph back into the whole being an ambassador and diplomat again, and this time around, to give Joseph some credit, he does a much better job. In 1800, Joseph is going to organize a peace treaty between the U.S. and France, which is awesome. France has an ally, and this is one of the first times the U.S. is going to be dipping its toe into international affairs. Point one for Joseph. Then, in 1801, Joseph is going to organize the Treaty of Luneville between Austria and France. The Treaty of Luneville is going to be huge. For one, Austria and France are at peace. This is great. France had been one of the first countries to join the war against France way back in the 1790s, and the fact that they're now agreeing to be at peace with France is a huge win for Napoleon and Joseph. Also, by agreeing to be at peace with France, Austria has exited the Second Coalition against France. Huge win. The same year, Joseph organizes the Concordat between France and the Catholic Church. This has been one of Joseph's huge dreams. He had wanted the Pope to enter into an agreement with France. With the Concordat, Catholicism is once again the state religion of France. After years of France technically being a religious following the whole Robespierre mess. And after Joseph's frankly disastrous attempt at being the minister to Rome, this is really a nice little win for Joseph. And then in March 1802, Joseph frankly has his hugest win with the Treaty of Amiens. The Treaty of Amiens is a peace treaty between France and England. This is huge. Historically, England and France have been the biggest of rivals, and now they're signing a peace. This is, like, I can't even begin to describe how major this is. And getting the Treaty of Amiens signed was no easy feat for Joseph. And not just because it's France and England agreeing to let bygones be bygones. One of the tricky bits in getting this peace signed is that the Marquis de Lafayette and Lord Cornwallis of England both wanted to be present at the signing, but the Marquis and Lord Cornwallis had some major beef between them because they had fought on opposite sides of each other at the American Revolution, and having them in the same room was a major no-no from an etiquette front. But Joseph managed to convince the Marquis de Lafayette to maybe sit this signing out, so the Treaty of Amiens managed to go off without a hitch. And suddenly, Joseph Bonaparte is one of the most popular men in France. In August 1802, Napoleon becomes consul for life. 
He has there be a little referendum on whether or not he should be consul for life, and shockingly, the referendum passes with something like 90% of Frenchmen being like, yes, we love Napoleon. With Napoleon being consul for life, everyone is expecting that Joseph would be his heir. After all, Joseph is the oldest one of the brothers, it would make sense that he would be his heir. However, Napoleon passes over Joseph for his brother Louis's son. And suddenly, Joseph is pretty annoyed with Napoleon. And it's going to get a little bit worse, because in 1803, the Treaty of Amiens falls apart because neither side had really been respecting the terms of the treaty. So suddenly, England and France are back at war. And not only that, Napoleon is making plans to invade England and has completely undone all of Joseph's hard work. Good job breaking it, little brother. In 1804, Napoleon is ramping up to become Emperor of France in his big, fancy coronation. We're having all those fun tensions that I discussed in the Josephine episode because the entire Bonaparte family is annoyed that Josephine is suddenly Empress of France and none of them have been given any fun titles or lands. For a hot moment, Napoleon does offer to make Joseph the King of Lombardy if Joseph completely removes himself from the Bonaparte line of succession. And Joseph is like, fuck no. Number one, being King of Lombardy isn't that great. Like, that's a slap in the face. And number two, I want to stay in the line of succession. I'm older than you. If anyone should be head of the line of succession, it's me, not you. So now the two brothers are majorly feuding. Luckily, it is going to get better, thanks to Napoleon's massive win in the Battle of Austerlitz in December of 1805. He is feeling happy. He has some lands and titles to throw around, and he is going to throw some lands and titles at Joseph. One of the big areas of land he needs to deal with is Naples. Naples technically was neutral, but right before Austerlitz, the king of Naples had stabbed Napoleon in the back by allying with Britain and Austria. Napoleon is furious, and he decides to push out the old king of Austria and replace him with someone who is going to do whatever Napoleon wants, aka one of his siblings. And he does need to appease Joseph, so why not make Joseph the king of Naples? At the end of December 1805, Joseph and a French army start out to Naples. They reach it in February 1806. Joseph officially takes over Naples on February 15, 1806, with fairly little resistance. He spends the rest of February and early March taking control of the surrounding areas, aka expanding his grasp, all the way down to the Strait of Messina, aka the bit of Italy that becomes Sicily. On March 30th, 1806, Napoleon officially names his big brother the King of Naples. However, Joseph and the French army are unable to capture the previous king of Naples, who escapes to Sicily. 
As a result, Joseph is going to have to deal with bands of Italian guerrilla bandits who are sympathetic to the previous king who are going to keep attacking his forces. And the British Navy does control the Mediterranean Sea. So they're going to keep bugging Naples from the ocean. And it does take Joseph a long time to beat the old royal fortress at Gaetea. He isn't going to capture it until July 1806, which means that Joseph is never fully going to be in control of the Neapolitan Peninsula. But he doesn't quite let that stop him. Once he's in position as the King of Naples, Joseph is going to do a ton of reform, mostly influenced by his student days in Pisa during the French Revolution. And when it comes to reform, Joseph does do a good job. He's going to get rid of feudalism and all the unfairness that's inherent in a feudal regime. He's going to modernize the, the Neapolitan government bureaucracies and educational systems. He's going to reform the prisons and the military recruitment systems. He's going to rebuild a lot of the city in a more modern way. And his wife, Julie, is also going to get involved in reform. Julie is going to be really focused on female education, and she's going to build a series of schools for girls in Naples. This is really going to be the first time in Neapolitan history that women in Naples have a chance to get educated. Joseph is going to do most of this reform with the help of his advisors in a very enlightened absolute mode of reformation. There's not going to be a constitution. The people don't really have a say in the reforms, but it's not a total like dictatorial way of doing it. And there's reforms from a modern standpoint are good. I think we can all agree that feudalism is bad and improving education is a good thing. However, in the midst of all these reforms, the Pope is never going to recognize Joseph as the king of Naples, which is super sad for Joseph. He's a good Catholic. He wants papal approval. Poor Joseph. By mid-1806, Prussia, Austria, Russia, and Britain had formed a new coalition against Napoleon and had started fighting him again. Meanwhile, Joseph was losing some military control over Naples. Remember those pro-old king guerrilla bandits I had talked about? Yeah, they were starting to attack Joseph's forces a lot more now, and English ships were starting to attack Naples from Sicily. And while Joseph was a great reformer, he was not a military genius, and he just wasn't doing a good job at fighting back. And Napoleon, who was kind of stressed out from the whole coalition fighting him, took his stress out on his older brother and straight up told him that the people of Naples hated him, which is a really nice thing to say to your brother. On top of this, Joseph started having to deal with some assassination attempts, which is always a fun thing to deal with when you're feeling stressed out. However, by the end of 1807, he was able to get things slightly more under control and the assassination attempts did taper off. He took this as a sign that he should start an affair 
with a local countess, Countess Maria Julia, and he and Maria Julia had two children, Julia and Teresa. Luckily for Joseph, while he was carrying out this affair, his wife Julie was in Paris due to poor health. Yes, while Joseph wasn't the most faithful to Julie, almost all of his affairs happened while Julie was out of the picture, which makes things slightly better. He was not pulling a Napoleon and having blatant affairs while his wife was literally in the next room. In November 1807, things were calm enough in Naples that Joseph was able to leave the city and meet up with Napoleon in Venice. Apparently, during this meeting, Napoleon let Joseph know that he was going to pull Joseph out of Naples and send him to Spain for reasons I'm going to discuss very shortly. Joseph let Napoleon know that, yeah, no, he didn't want to go to Spain. He was very happy in Naples. Thank you very much. And Napoleon was like, yeah, no, too bad. I'm sending you to Spain. Joseph sighed and went back to Naples, where he continued to deal with slight unrest, and also started having to deal with his younger brother, Lucien, who, while being the most competent of the Bonaparte brothers, had a slight tendency to be independent and ignore everything that Napoleon wanted him to do. In 1808, Joseph's main Neapolitan minister, Salasetti, almost got assassinated. In the process, two of Joseph's servants got killed, and Joseph started to get really nervous about the whole Naples situation and was like, ooh, maybe I'm not as popular as I thought I was. So he brought Julie back from Paris, and that did ease tensions a little bit because everyone in Naples loved Julie Bonaparte, which makes sense because Julie Bonaparte truly was amazing. Meanwhile, Napoleon really was breathing down Joseph's neck on the whole moving to Spain thing. So let's talk a little bit about what was going on in Spain. Not only was Spain a hot mess internally, Spain was also a real pain in France's ass. When the French Revolution had broken out, Spain was super against the French Revolution because the King of Spain, Charles IV, was Louis XVI's cousin and thus did not approve of the whole cutting off Louis XVI's head. Spain initially tried to invade France to prevent the revolution from happening, but the French army quickly kicked their ass, so by 1795, the two were awkward allies. But throughout the 1790s, Spain kept double-crossing France and Napoleon and kept sort of allowing the British to fight the French via Spain, and it got to the point where Napoleon was utterly fed up with the Spanish. And on top of all of that, the political situation in Spain was insane. And now I realize I really missed the opportunity to make a great insane in Spain pun. Alas. In short, the king of Spain, Charles IV, and his son Ferdinand kept trying to kill each other, and their wives kept getting involved in the whole mess, and no one was really sure what was going on. 
So Napoleon, being a Napoleon, decided that the only thing to do was to get in control of Spain and to send French troops to Spain. In March 1808, Charles IV abdicated the throne to his son Ferdinand. As soon as Ferdinand got control of the French throne, he said he was going to do whatever the hell Napoleon wanted him to do and went to visit Napoleon in April 1808. He then abdicated the crown to Napoleon. Once Napoleon had the crown to Spain, he was like, yeah, I'm going to give the crown to Spain to my brother, Joseph. So in May 1808, Napoleon called Joseph back to France. Joseph was extremely unhappy about this, but he went because everyone knew that you don't say no to Napoleon. However, before he left for France, he wrote a quick, fairly liberal constitution for Naples before he left. Meanwhile, protests over the entire abdication situation broke out in Spain on May 3rd, which led to between 200 and 500 Spaniards being murdered by the French army and Ferdinand kind of regretting the entire proposition, as well as a very famous painting by Goya, which a lot of art historians consider to be the first truly modern piece of art. But that's neither here nor there. On June 6th, 1808, Napoleon said, yeah, Joseph is the king of Spain, and if you don't like it, I'm going to send the French army into Spain. And no one quite wants that, so things vaguely calm down in Spain. On July 8th, Joseph formally abdicates the crown of Naples to the husband of his younger sister, Caroline, whose name is Marat, which, as always, will be a story for another study guide. He then moves to Spain, where he sets up a fun new reform-minded constitution named the Statue of Bayonne. Joseph is like, this is great. I'm going to do the reform thing in Spain like I did in Naples. And while the people of Naples weren't like militarily happy, they did like the reforms I did. So the people in Spain are also going to be happy with my reforms. This is going to be awesome. However, the Spanish people don't love Joseph's reforms. They think Joseph is trying to pull a French Revolution on them. They remembered what happened with the French Revolution. Religion in Spain is extremely Catholic. They think Joseph is trying to make them all atheists. So they start setting up juntas to push against French rule and insurrections against Joseph start almost immediately, which leads to a huge loss by the French army at the Battle of Bayin in July. And Joseph loses control of Madrid. And Joseph is like, oh fuck, maybe this wasn't a good idea. Maybe I too should abdicate the crown of Spain and continue this game of musical chairs once again. After the loss at Bayin in July 1808, Joseph is never going to fully manage to regain control of Spain. Napoleon himself has to come visit Spain in an attempt to boost French morale. On the surface, it works. Napoleon does manage to reconquer about half of Spain by the start 
1809, which means that Joseph doesn't abdicate, but there are going to continue to be underlying issues. The French troops in Spain are going to continue to be a mess. The morale issue is never fully going to be resolved, and it does mean that Napoleon is going to continue to have to throw troops that he doesn't fully have at Spain instead of at his eastern campaigns and at the Russians, which is going to cause trouble for Napoleon in the long run. Also, after the loss of Balin, the English are going to realize that Spain is going to be a massive weak point for Napoleon. So the British forces are going to continue to, one, fund guerrilla warfare in Spain, and two, get more and more involved in Spain via Portugal, which theoretically is neutral against Napoleon, but which has historically been an ally with England and is more than happy to be a jumping off point. So yeah, Spain is going to be an issue that Joseph and Napoleon are never going to be able to resolve. In 1810, Joseph is going to reboot his political reforms in Spain, making it very fucking clear that he has no interest in touching the Spanish Catholic Church, but it's very much too little, too late. The Spanish are kind of fed up with him. They don't care that he's trying to, like, bring more education to the country and, like, make the military better and reform political institutions. They just want him out. He and his army do attempt a military victory by besieging Spanish rebels at Cadiz, but it fails. The failure to break the Spanish rebels at Cadiz is a huge loss for Joseph. After the failure at Cadiz, Joseph is no longer going to be on the offensive. From 1810, after he leaves Spain, he and the French are basically going to be playing defense from here on out, just trying to hold as much territory as he can. And this really becomes obvious in 1812, when the British army under the Duke of Wellington starts to push really seriously into Spain. The British army under Wellington starts to capture major towns like Salamanca, which is a huge loss for Joseph. After the British capture Salamanca, he flees from Madrid for good. Every so often, his army manages to have a minor victory or two, but it's just not enough. We're going to see more and more British troops who are allying with the guerrilla forces in Spain and fewer and fewer French troops in Spain, mostly because Napoleon is really having to pull his army out of Spain. We're at that point in the Napoleonic campaigns where he's trying to do that Russia campaign, so he can't lose forces on Spain anymore. Joseph's final battle in Spain takes place in June 1813 with the Battle of Vittoria. This is a massive loss for Joseph and the French. Wellington just crushes the French army in Spain. Literally, the only thing going for Joseph and the French is that the French soldiers do conduct themselves with some dignity in the loss, but after the battle, Joseph 
leaves Spain for good and returns to Paris. After the Battle of Vitoria, the British forces just raid the surrounding town of San Sebastian, and Wellington takes the art that Joseph had left behind in Spain and brings it back to Paris, because that's what you do when you win a major campaign. After fleeing Spain, Joseph returns to Paris, and he's going to act as Napoleon's governor of Paris for the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. Once again, this is not exactly a great position. Joseph is technically in charge of the French army when Napoleon abdicates, which means that he has to deal with Paris when all the allies enter, and Napoleon is not super helpful in all of this. He just tells Joseph to keep his second wife, Maria, and his son safe, and also to make sure that Josephine is okay, and not much else. So, thanks, Napoleon. When Napoleon comes back for the famous 100 days, aka when Napoleon escapes his exile from Elba and tries and fails to regain power, Joseph supports him because for all that Napoleon did, Joseph is a pretty loyal brother. After Napoleon's failure at Waterloo and his exile for good at St. Helena, Joseph decides that maybe it's time to peace out of France. He manages to sneak out of France on a boat to the United States under an assumed name, leaving behind his wife and children. Literally no one knows who he is until he arrives in New York City. Joseph is then going to sporadically live in the United States between 1817 and 1839. He's going to live in New York and Pennsylvania before settling down in New Jersey, where he has a massive estate called Point Breeze. His estate at Point Breeze, which burns down in 1820 but then gets rebuilt, becomes a tourist attraction. Everyone, and I mean everyone, wants to visit. Napoleon Bonaparte's older brother, who was the King of Naples and the King of Spain. Major politicians, including Henry Clay, John Quincy Adams, and Daniel Webster, come to visit Joseph. During his time in New Jersey, Joseph also gets really obsessed with seeing the mythical Jersey Devil, which is always fun because I love when cryptozoology intersects with major historical figures. Joseph gets so obsessed with the Jersey Devil that he builds a series of elaborate traps in an attempt to capture it, but as far as we know, he was not successful in this endeavor. During his time in New Jersey, Joseph also picks up a mistress, Annette Savage, who is 18 when they meet, and they have two children together, Pauline Anne and Catherine Charlotte. In 1820, Joseph gets an offer to become the Emperor of Mexico, but he very wisely turns his offer down because, as we're later going to see, Bonaparte's and Mexico don't exactly go well together. In 1832, Joseph briefly returns to Europe and stays in England. He does attempt to reunite with his wife, Julie, who by now is living in Italy, but he isn't able to get a passport. During his time in England, he does re-enter into communication with his surviving family members and other former revolutionaries like the Marquis de Lafayette, 
but then he returns back to Point Breeze, and he will live in Point Breeze until 1839, when he returns to Europe for good. When he returns to Europe, he moves to Italy. He's able to reunite with his wife, his children, and his mother. However, in 1840, Joseph suffers from a stroke, which leaves him paralyzed on one side, and he dies in Florence, Italy, on July 28, 1844, at the age of 76. So, for those study guide fans who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap the life and times of Joseph Bonaparte. Joseph Bonaparte is born on Corsica in 1768. He is the oldest of the Bonaparte children. As an infant, Corsica gets taken over by the French. When he is 12, he gets sent to France for his education. He goes to school in Burgundy and is an excellent student. The plan is that he will join the church, but in 1784, he returns to Corsica to take care of his sick father, who dies in 1785. Because his father did not exactly leave money for the family, Joseph ends up becoming a lawyer in Pisa. He then returns to Corsica, opens a law practice, but the French Revolution is happening. And as it turns out, Joseph is really good at explaining the French Revolution to fellow Corsicans and begins developing a bit of a reputation and becoming really famous on the island. But by the 1790s, Corsica is becoming embroiled in a nationalist rebellion of its own. Joseph and Napoleon don't support this nationalist uprising, so the entire Bonaparte family has to flee to France. In France, Joseph marries the daughter of a wealthy merchant, Julie Clary. In 1796, Joseph's little brother Napoleon has become the head of the Italian army and manages to get Joseph the position of a diplomat in Turin and Parma. Joseph isn't the best diplomat, but through his brother's connections, he then becomes the minister to Rome. Joseph kind of fucks up being minister to Rome after a mob invades the papal palace and he returns to France where he becomes a member of the French legislature and helps his baby brother overthrow the French government. Once Napoleon is the consul for life of France, Joseph continues helping out Napoleon. He organizes a series of fairly successful peace treaties between France, the Pope, France and the U.S., and most excitingly, France and England. However, Napoleon immediately undoes the peace treaty between France and England by declaring war on England. Joseph isn't thrilled by this, but then Napoleon makes him king of Naples in order to control the Italian peninsula. As king of Naples, Joseph is going to do some really exciting and cool reforms, but he's never quite going to get military control of Naples because while Joseph is excellent at reform, he is not a military genius like his little brother. By 1809, Napoleon really wants one of his siblings on the throne of Spain because Spain is being a real pain in his ass. So he pulls Joseph from Naples and makes him king of Spain. This goes horribly. The Spanish are afraid 
that Joseph is going to put some French Revolution-esque reforms in Spain, which Joseph really wasn't going to do, but the Spanish keep rebelling against Joseph. Napoleon keeps having to throw soldiers that he frankly doesn't have at Spain, and the British begin getting involved in Spain. Joseph never quite holds control in Spain, and by 1812, he's lost the country. In 1813, he flees for Spain. In 1813, he flees Spain, returns to France for good, and is going to hold control of Paris until his brother abdicates first in 1814 and then in 1815 after Waterloo. After Waterloo, Joseph flees France under an assumed name, moves to the U.S., where he will live in New Jersey for about two decades, keeping a younger mistress. In 1840, he returns back to France, reunites with his wife in Italy, and will live there until he dies of a stroke in 1844 at the age of 76. All things considered, I don't hate Joseph. He wasn't as incompetent as some of Napoleon's younger siblings, who, will, who we will get to. He definitely had some promising ideas when it came to reform. I think Joseph was just the right person in the wrong place at the wrong time. If he had been ruling these countries at times of less military stress, he could have done some really cool things. He had potential. It just didn't work out. For this episode, most of my research came from Matt Zoniak's Mental Floss article on Joseph, Shannon Sullen's 2014 article on Joseph, and John Abbott's biography, Joseph Bonaparte. As always, for a full list of sources and relevant Im images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next study guide is going to be on the most competent of the Bonaparte bros, Lucien Bonaparte. This week, there will also be a tangent cast for patrons five, who donate $5 a month or more, which will be on Napoleon's ex-girlfriend and her husband, who became the king and queen of Sweden. Donate and check it out at patreon.com slash Sad Girl Study Guides. It's super cool. And it costs about as much as a coffee. As always, if you want to reach me at social media, you can do so at Sad Girl Study Pod on Twitter or Sad Girl Study at Instagram. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or Spotify. And let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review. Or else, I'll be sad. Thanks!